Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. That's where we've been lately. And go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 18 tonight. That's where we'll be camping out for a little bit. And then we'll be jumping, but we'll get to there in a minute. Um, Every week, I sort of recap where we've been in the Gospel of Luke. I give you guys typically an overview of the chapters we've covered. And then I remind you why we're in the Gospel of Luke in the first place. And tonight... I want to put just a little more emphasis on the why. I want to put a little more emphasis on the why we are in the Gospel of Luke. If you'll remember from the previous times that I've recapped this series, I've said it um, almost every single week that we are in this Gospel not only to learn what Jesus taught, but to learn about Jesus himself. Because if we say that we follow Christ, if we call ourselves disciples or we call ourselves Christians, then it is good for us to have an understanding of who Christ is. And tonight, particularly, I wanted to bring that purpose back to our minds because the crux of the message tonight is literally understanding more of who Jesus is. In fact, that's the title of tonight's message. Pretty simple, Jesus is. Now, I should say we're not going to encapsulate everything Jesus is in a 30-minute message, but We are going to cover some of the things, and the reason for this purpose tonight is that our passage that we're about to read together reveals quite a bit about who Jesus is, not only because of what is said about him in this, but also what Jesus does. So let me show you what I mean. Let's let's read the text together. Um, You follow along as I read it out loud, and then we'll get into it. Luke chapter 18, we're going to be in verses 35 to 43, 35 to 43. Here we go. As he drew near to Jericho, this is Jesus, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him uh, rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So like I said, we will see more of who Jesus is tonight, not only because of what he does, but because of what is said about him, especially in those first three verses. If you're looking at those first three verses there, there's something said about Jesus that I really want to spend some time on tonight, and that's this, and it's our first point for the night. It's that Jesus is the Davidic king. Jesus is the Davidic king. Now, I know um, this may not mean a whole bunch to some of you at at the moment, but I want to just show you how awesome, like literally how awesome it is that this beggar would address Jesus as the son of David. And you see it right there in verse 38, if you're looking at it, like people, they call him Jesus of Nazareth, the, the crowd that's there. And we'll get to that in a moment. But the beggar, if you're looking at verse 38, the beggar says... Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, if you aren't too familiar with God's plan of redemption through the covenants, if you've never really studied the covenants, you might be saying, wait a minute, I thought that Jesus was the son of Joseph. 
thought he was son of Joseph the, the carpenter, or Jesus was the son of God. I, I thought God was his father, or Jesus called himself the son of man. Like, those are all things that we hear. So why, why is this guy, this beggar, calling him after the name of some dude in the Old Testament that is not his, his father? And, and to that, I'd say, to your concern, yes. Right? David was not his immediate father, but I also say no. Let me show you what I mean. Now, I want you, I know I told you just turn to Luke and we'll come back here, okay? And I don't often have you do this, but I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's in the Old Testament. It's before Kings. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and, and this one, this one's an important one. Right? This is a really important text. It affects our entire understanding of who Jesus is. So instead of putting it on the screen tonight like I normally do, I want you to see it in your own Bibles. I want you to feel free to take some notes on it if you're that kind of person, if you're jotting notes in your phone. like I want you to have something in your repertoire when it comes to this passage. So in this passage, 2 Samuel 7, we have the prophet Nathan going to speak to King David. Now, King David, this is the same David like David and Goliath, right? The same David, he wrote a large amount of the Psalms. This David was the father of Solomon who collected and wrote many of the Proverbs that we see. Like, he's kind of a big deal, right? And um, he's the same David that's called a man after God's own heart. So that's the David that we're talking about. That's who the prophet Nathan is going to speak to. And he has this message from God to David. I'm going to read this whole thing, but you'll see why I'm going to read it. So follow along if you can. 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to start in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, so this is God talking to Nathan. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. It's a long passage. Longer than we normally read through in, in one little chunk of time. But here's why it's important. This text contains amazing truths what God has said he's going to do in history. So I, I wanted to break down this passage quickly for you because this is not just the only point we're getting into tonight. So on the screen right now, this is a breakdown 
of what we see in this passage, okay? These are the things, like to summarize, these are the things that God is promising to David, to King David. First, in verses eight and nine there, he promises him to have a great name. That means his name will be known and it will last forever. That's verses eight and nine. In verses 10 and 11, he promises him that through him there would be a place of peace for God's people. Place of peace would be given to God's people. I can see some of you are already starting to connect the dots, right? Like, oh, okay, I think I'm starting to understand. Like uh, verses 12 to 14, he promises David a son whose throne will last forever. Not just a little bit, like forever. Verses 13 to 16, he promises that God's eternal faithful love will be through the son and to the son. God's faithful love will be through and to this son. Now, I know I'm going through this kind of quickly because like I said, we have other points to hit tonight, but like this, this is important what you see right here. And if you have any questions about the text that I just read, there's so much I can't cover. Come find me afterwards. I'll send you some resources about the Davidic covenant and, and all that is contained in it. I can give you some deeper resources. But right here, what are we seeing? Namely, that hundreds And hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, God promised something to the people of God through Nathan to David. Peace for God's people, a king to reign over them forever. He promised it. He promised that someone would come to the people of God through David's line, right? It would be David's son, and then it would be a great name. It would bring God's people peace. He would reign forever. He'd have this faithful and everlasting love. And like, guys, David did have a son. His name was Solomon. And and not all these things were true about him. Like Solomon, he died. He did not last forever. Um, The kingdom of Israel, it was split after his death. Like that throne no longer held the same power that it did. The, the house was divided and they went into two different people nations. So like clearly Solomon was not the answer to God's promise for David. And what did that mean? Like what did that mean for the people of God to know that their king had been promised these things and they weren't given to him? It meant that for hundreds of years, the people of God were waiting for God to make good on his promise. For hundreds of years, they were waiting for the God that keeps all his promises. It's like we just sang a few minutes ago, the God that keeps all his promises to fulfill this promise. They were looking, they were searching, they were hoping, they were praying that the true son of David, the true king, the true chosen one that God would call his own son would show up. And year after year, generation after generation, false prophet after false prophet, the people of God each time, they're like, is this the one? Is this the guy? Is this going to be the one who's going to redeem us? Is this the one that's going to make the people of Israel and the people of God have an eternal king time and time again and time and time again? It wasn't him until, until Jesus. And if you're wondering, how, how do we know that Jesus was the son of David? Like, yeah, I get it. I know that it says it there that that man called him the, the son of David. But how do we know he was the son of David and not just some rando? I want to show you. Like, we don't have time to read this entire passage, so I'll just show you in my Bible. But if you were to turn to Matthew 1, at the very beginning of your New Testament, I'll pick that up later. If you were to turn to the beginning of your New Testament, here's what you're going to see. 
you're going to see a, a genealogy. And it's not just any genealogy. It says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and in the first verse it says, the genealogy of Christ, the son of David. And then it goes through for 16 verses and proves to you, proves to you that Jesus descended from the line of David and that he would have been an heir to the throne of David. And I've got it on the screen just so you can see it here. This is verse 17. It's just the end of this genealogy. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So what did we just see here? We saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant, He's the fulfillment of this promise that God gave hundreds of years before he was ever born. We saw that God was working through the course of history to bring this to fruition. Like we saw that the Lord will have his will and he will have his way and he will keep his promises. And so we need to understand, that's why it's so important for us to understand tonight that Jesus is the Davidic king and that our response, you know, I like to give you application points, right? Like our response is to just be amazed at this. Like sometimes I give you guys like really like go do this, sit down and, and do this. But sometimes application points need to be just, just reflect on it, guys. Like just sit in it. Think about all the things that would have to happen for Jesus to be the son of David, to be born at the right time, in the right place. Think about all that it meant for people that understood this. Soak in it, reflect in it, and, and like as an application point, let's just like let your heart and mind be filled with wonder of, of God being able to bring this to pass. Be amazed that there's, there's so much evidence of who Jesus was. I mean, I know that when I first started reading scripture, I saw this genealogy, I just skipped it, right? Like, I mean, we all still sort of skip them sometimes, right? Like you breeze through them, you might glance over them, you might look at the names, but... And you realize that those are there to prove a point to you. Like how much more amazing is scripture then? All right. So Jesus is the Davidic king. Let's, let's get back to our passage tonight. And really understand what that means for him, for the beggar to say this. So back in verse 36, um, 35 and 36 of chapter 18 of Luke, um, talking about the beggar, it says, In hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. So the beggar's like, hey, who is this that everyone's shouting for? And the, the crowd tells him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So blind beggar is asking what's going on. And what do the people, what do the crowd call Jesus? They call him Jesus of Nazareth, a.k.a. just a guy. First and, and last name. Like, who's this guy? It's John Smith. Just Cody Rogers, right? Just, just a person that exists. That's who he is to them. Like, albeit it's a John Smith who can heal and, and preach and they're calling him a prophet. He could be like a really great and powerful person, but the address that they give him is as simple as someone's first and last name. And in response to hearing that, that Jesus is there, what does this blind beggar call him? If you look at verse 38, like I said, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So, in eight words, right? In eight words, what does this beggar do? It took just eight words for him not to call Jesus just some person, 
Not to call him just some prophet, not to call him just some guy from Nazareth, but to actually call him the son of David, meaning the long-awaited one, the chosen one, the king forever, the Messiah, the Christ. Like in eight words, this man is making a plea of faith. This, This is a statement of faith. To call him the son of David is to say, that's my savior. That's the one. So eight words, statement of faith. And it's not just that. It's the statement of faith and it's a plea, right? It's a plea for healing. And he doesn't just simply say it. He doesn't just say it once, right? I I say like he pleased because if you look back at verse 39, like those that were in the front, they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So like this man is so convicted about what he believes and who he believes Jesus is that he doesn't care what the crowd is telling him. He doesn't care that they're trying to shut him out and shut him down. Like he needs and, and needs to know who he's calling to and he needs to speak to them and he needs to make a plea to him, this, this long-awaited Davidic king. And that was the right thing to do. And how do we know that was the right thing to do? Look at Jesus' response, right? His response is full of mercy. And that's the second thing we see tonight. Jesus is full of mercy. Not only is this long-awaited Davidic king, but he's full of mercy. Look at verse 40 with me again. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, recover my sight. And Jesus said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Like this poor beggar cries out to have mercy. And and Jesus does just that. Now, if you remember last week, I gave you a definition of sin. I want us to have these really um, full comprehension and understanding of some of these major biblical terms, right? Like, so I described what sin was this week. Let's see what the definition of mercy is. Like when we're talking about mercy, when when it's spoken about in this way, mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So to put it simple, like grace and mercy, like we like to tie them together because they sort of are when it comes to Christ, but they're actually two different things. Like grace is God's free gift to, to those that don't deserve it. Like grace is being given something you don't deserve, but mercy is having something withheld that you do deserve. Having something withheld that you do deserve, and it is within Christ's power. As the Son of God, it is within Christ's power to allow harm to continue to come to man, this man through his blindness. He could have kept him in his blindness for whatever reasons he saw fit, for whatever reasons the Lord puts us through those things. Like He could have chosen to do that, but what does it say? In mercy, in mercy and compassion and forgiveness, Christ takes that away from him. It's the literal definition. Like Christ is merciful and he's merciful to those that have faith. Look at what it says at the end of verse 42. Your faith has made you well. Meaning that faith in Christ as the Davidic king, faith in Christ as the son of God was the vehicle that God used to show mercy to this beggar. Was the avenue in which he chose to give mercy to him. So, so what we learn in this passage is that Jesus is merciful, he's full of mercy, but what, what should our application be? What should our response be? It's to seek it. 
Jesus is full of this mercy, and I want to encourage you to seek that mercy. Seek it the way this man sought it, right? Like, be so amazed by who Jesus is, being the Davidic king. Be so amazed by that in response, like continually seek mercy in, his, in your life. Continue to seek uh, his compassion in your life. Continue to seek his forgiveness in your life. And, and maybe for the first time, right? Maybe, you, maybe you're sitting here and, and you've never really understood, like, whoa, like he's the Davidic king. Like that's like historical and that's proven. And like they have records and, and there's so much more that I didn't even have time to say. Like, maybe it's finally starting to hit you. Like, he existed. He's real. And they have evidence. And they're able to back it up. And they're able to support it. Maybe I need to take this seriously. And maybe you do. And maybe you need to be so amazed by this Davidic king that you decide to give your life to him and say, have mercy on me for my sin, for turning away from you. For not being with you, have mercy on me, but, but maybe you know him, right? Maybe you've called him the son of David for a long time. And I want to encourage you to continue seeking that mercy, that compassion, that love that he's full of. Continue to cry out to him just like this man cried out to him because he is full of mercy. And what we see now in the next part of this passage is that he's full of power. Jesus is not only full of mercy, but he's full of Power. Look back at verse 42 and, and 43. And, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, immediately, he recovered his sight. Like, note here, like there's no spells, no incantations, no LASIK eye surgery, no medicines, no consultations, no adjustments, right? Like nothing there, just words, just a simple command, a command as simple as when back in Genesis, God said, let there be light. Except instead of the words, let there be light, he says, recover your sight. See again. Like it's a command that's just as simple as the words he spoke to bring everything into creation. And what we need to understand is it's just as powerful. It's just as simple and it's just as powerful because what word is chosen here it says immediately immediately the man recovered his sight what does this show us it shows us the same God the same God that works throughout the course of human history to accomplish his plan to bring us this king the same God that's full of this mercy that he's willing to give forgiveness and compassion to to those that seek him is the same God that's full of this extreme power that just brings creation to light with a sentence and that power is found in Christ and this moment shows us that that power is in Christ like that and I know what you're thinking, like, Cody, this is an obvious point, right? Like, I already know that God is, is powerful, and, and I already know that Christians believe that, that God is all-powerful. That's like theology 101. God's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's everywhere. Those are things that culture just sort of knows that we believe about God. So what's the point? You could just write it down. Yeah, he's powerful, but what should you do with it? I want to encourage you, don't forget it. Don't forget it. You see, because the, the beautiful relationship that we have with God and with Christ, 
Like having the spirit within us, having God's love shown towards us, like as we enter into this relationship with Christ, like it's beautiful, it's amazing. But also it means that sometimes we forget just how powerful he really is. And because we forget it or we become callous to it or we just don't really believe in the first place, but because of these things, we we stop asking for it. We stop asking and we stop trusting for his power in our lives. We don't act like the beggar here, right? We're not acting like the beggar. Instead, half the time we're acting like the crowd who makes Jesus just this commonplace man that's from Nazareth instead of this all-powerful, saving, merciful God. Like we, we let Jesus become so commonplace in our lives that we stop seeking him. We stop seeing him for who he is. And you know what? That translates to encouraging others to do the same. I mean, you've, you've probably had it happen. You have, a, you have a friend going through something extremely difficult. You have a friend going through some kind of situation and, and maybe you give them a book to read. Maybe you find them a counselor. Maybe you take them out and just have a, a great time with them to, to bring up their spirits. Maybe uh, you sit down and you pray with them to help make them feel better. And, and none of those things, none of those things are wrong. None of the things are wrong in themselves. And, um, but how often do we suggest those things as a replacement for God's power rather than an agent of God's power. You know what I mean? Like how often do we suggest those things as if they have power in themselves rather than just ways that God shows his power to us through them? Like God can use a book to impact us. I mean, right? He can use the body of believers. I know how many of you have had your lives changed here just because of the friends you've made, just because of the body of believers here in this room like he can use that God can use counseling God can use prayer he can use all these things to shape us and mold us and change us but we don't always suggest these things because we have a sincere belief that God is powerful and he uses those things rather we suggest them because we think there's power in themselves we think oh if we don't do them then we're not going to receive feeling better or whatever it may be because we, we put this weight on them it's not actually there. And, and so our encouragement tonight is, is don't forget that the God you call upon, the God that has saved your soul, don't forget how powerful he really is. Like don't let him become commonplace in your life, but rather acknowledge his power in your life. Seek him as the one who's all powerful. Encourage others to see him as one who has this wonder, amazing working power. And like, yeah, give your friend a book, give them a, a counselor, like share scripture with them, take them out and make them feel better. Right? Take them out to a place where you can just remind them of friendship and goodness and life, but do it because you have a sincere belief in the power of God to use those things as instruments of his work, like not forgetting that the power in their lives is, is through those things, not in those things. And probably, I don't want to say more importantly, but maybe one that hits home even more, Don't forget that it's his power when it comes to those things failing. Like, don't forget that when a friend goes astray, that the power is not in you being able to fix them. That there's not power in you and there's not power in those things, but rather the power lies in God. Like, it's in his strength that people's lives are changed. It's in his strength that hearts are softened. It's his, in his strength that people are healed. 
It's his strength and power. And, and the reason I bring that up is because I just want you to realize how relieving that is. How relieving is it that the power is in God and the strength is in him? And that it's not on us when it comes to working in someone's life. We're just called to be faithful, to be faithful, to share the things that God uses with people and understand that we shouldn't forget that the power is with him. So that's the, the third encouragement. And, and on to the last one. What we see in this very last part is that Jesus is a reason to worship. Jesus is a reason to worship. Look back at verse 43, just that last half there. Immediately he recovered his sight, followed him, glorifying God, right? So the blind man is, is healed. He can see he glorifies God and it says, and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. So they knew it back when this happened and, and, and we should certainly now see this, that Jesus is a reason to worship. That's what they saw when they saw Jesus heal. That's what the blind man saw when he was healed. This person, this son of David, he's a reason that I should glorify God. And our application point to it tonight is pretty simple. It's get to it. Get to it. And but what I mean by that is like start putting that into practice right now, like for your whole life, right? When I say worship, I don't just mean like sung praise. I mean your worship as a life to the Lord, like whether it be the worship of God in your devotionals or it is worship through song here on Thursdays or on Sunday mornings. Like here, here's what I'm trying to say, like just getting right down to it. Your mood and your life circumstances are not the reason you worship. They're not the driving force why you worship. Now, don't get me wrong, like our emotions, they can be a catalyst for why we worship. Our life circumstances can spur us on to worship or drive us into worship. Like they can be a catalyst to cause it, but they should never be a deterrent. They should never cause us not to worship because while your mood and emotions or even life situations make it harder or easier to worship, they are not the reason, but Jesus is. Jesus is the reason to worship and, and, and who he is, like being the Davidic king, the fulfillment of prophecies and the, the savior of God's people and what he's done, right? Like he not only opened the eyes of this blind man, but he opened our eyes to faith. He allowed us to be saved. He saved us and he redeemed us and he made us whole and he calls us sons and daughters of God. Like God accepted us for that. And so we are just like that blind man who was healed and accepted because of his faith. And so that is our reason to worship and and I just as I'm ending here tonight I just want to say that out of all these points out of all these points I think the one that can change your life so quickly besides giving your life to Christ in the first place I think the one that can change your life so quickly is to start putting this one into practice if there's something that will benefit you whether it be in congregational worship or it it's in your devotions or it's in your preaching to the gospel to the, the unsaved or it's in your workplace or it's in your school. If there's one thing that will equip you and encourage you the rest of your life with Christ, it's gonna be able to put your life circumstances aside to lay down whatever's going on and to come back to Jesus at the reason that you worship. And the pressure's real, right? 
Like the pressure to, like those awkward moments when it's super awkward because either like you can hear your own voice while you're singing or you feel like everyone else can hear your voice. Those really awful moments where you just had a really rough day. You're emotionally overwhelmed. It's hard. You're tired. You had a little sleep. You're up till midnight helping Big Daddy Weave load up the, the trailers. And now you're, you're here and you're just tired. And, and it's hard for you to just get over the fact that, that you have all these things going on. And I don't need to listen anymore. You guys know. But it's more than just that, right? And I say this all the time. Like, musical preference. I said it every time I preach on worship. Like, if you walk into a place... And you can't worship because you don't resonate with the worship culture. If they're singing biblical lyrics, if they're praising God honestly, if you can't worship alongside them, what does that say your reason to worship is? Because if your reason to worship is Christ, then you'll worship him wherever he is. But if your reason to worship is because you like the music style, because you like the people around you, because you're in a good mood, because things are just going your way. You know what your reason to worship is, right? It's not Christ. They saw it right here. They saw Christ for who he was, and right away they acknowledged it and glorified him because of it. So just a few things that we learned tonight about who Jesus is, certainly not all of them, but he's the Davidic king. I pray you spend more time researching 2 Samuel. Amazing stuff we didn't even get to cover. Um, he's full of mercy, he's full of power, and he's a reason to worship. Let me worship, uh, not me worship, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Once again, I say it every single night. Thank you for your word and all that you do through it. Jesus, thank you that you are full of mercy. Lord, that you are powerful, powerful enough to save us to redeem us. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room tonight that has questions that are burning inside of them of, of what they believe about you or who you may be or what they've never believed about you, but now they do, Lord. I, I pray that you would just give them the boldness and the courage to open up their mouths, to ask the questions to any of our leaders. I, I pray that you would encourage those of us that have called you the son of David for so long, that you would help us to continually seek mercy, to not forget your power, and Lord, to always see you as a reason to worship despite any circumstances in life. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for meeting us here tonight. Be with us as we spend time in community now. Lord, I pray for fruitful conversations that aren't just small talk, but that actually get into each other's lives and conversations that glorify you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.